Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Does that ever get old hearing that? You're the only one that says it, so no, it's cool. Really, like your kids don't, like when they go, hey, this is my dad, he's a clinical psychologist? Never have. Your girlfriend, when they introduce you to others, doesn't say, hey, this is my boyfriend, Matt, he's a clinical psychologist? Nope. Nope. We're not too pretentious around our house. So what do they just call you, dad? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I'd rather be called dad if. It's the if best it's job in the, it's the best job in the world. It is. Well, uh, I mean, this is I a mean, great job. Pay well. No, no. It's like the reverse. <laughs> yeah. You have to pay to be a dad. But it's still worth its weight in gold. Yeah, I love being a dad. So this job is cool because we get a chance to share all kinds of people's recovery and their stories. And I like to say we're we're dealers, but we're dealing hope. <laughs> okay. Was that bad? Yeah, it's a little cheesy. But, but I like it. I but, like it though. But I think hope is powerful. Hope is I was I don't I think I was watching the Hunger Games or something the other day mm-hmm. and uh this old uh, Sutherland, Kiefer Sutherland's dad, Donald Sutherland. Donald, yeah. Yeah, he was saying he said the only thing more powerful than fear is hope. Well, I got and, when I was in graduate school, I had the opportunity to uh, sit live and have a lecture by a guy named C.R. Snyder, okay. Ph.D., clinical psychologist. He's passed away now, unfortunately. He passed away at kind of a young age. What did C.R. Snyder tell you? He is the he's he was the most eminent researcher of his day on hope, and he actually proved with a lot of really solid research that we still use today that hopefulness is actually the best cure for depression from a cognitive standpoint, and actually outperforms most medications. If you can help people really develop hope, then they they overcome clinical depression, which is bananas. That's that's pretty cool stuff. You know, when we do this podcast, and, and there's kind of a formula of how it goes. We people bring people in, they start their story, then they introduce how they got introduced to drugs, and then normally there's a rock bottom, and then there's a turning point in how they're fighting back and what they're doing now. I mean, that's basically what the podcast is. Yeah. But most people will talk about... Uh, Something that happens in their rock bottom. Uh, they'll either say a light switch was flipped or something all of a sudden just made sense. But I, I think before that even happens, there's hope. And I, when I'm talking to people and, and they're in their addiction and they don't know what to do, I always tell them to hold on for hope. Hope that the day will get better. Hope that this will go away. Hope. That, and sometimes that's all you have is hope. And, and, and I think hope is so powerful that it gets people to being 
sick and tired of being sick and tired. Hope that their family will welcome them back. Hope that their kids will forgive them. Hope that they can get their life back on track. So I'm a firm believer in hope. And so when I say we're dealing hope, I I, I know it's cheesy, but I'm grateful for it because yeah. I think it's great. I'm, I'm with you 100%. Hope is the precursor to action. And so when people have hopefulness, then they're they're likely to take action in all those categories you just brought up. The th- thing about this job is that it's it's so rewarding in the fact that we get to see so many people who have turned their lives around. I love it, actually. It's one of my highlights of my week, every week. But on the flip side of that coin is we get a front row to a lot of people who don't get that opportunity. And I'll give you an example. There's a guy in this building. And uh, before we start, I always go in there, uh, and that's where I steal these waters from. Mm-hmm. I always get the waters for the guests. Right. And so I was talking. I wondered to- where you've got the waters. <laughs> so I just go in there, and I'm like, There's hey, how are you doing? around, but you always have them. And he's always like, you need some waters? And I was like, yeah. And so I always <laughs> steal four waters from him. Yeah. And he goes, hey, do you remember that friend I was telling you about, that old roommate of mine? And I was like, yeah, how's he doing? And he goes, well, he passed away. Uh, yeah. And I go, did he overdose? And he goes, yeah. And I go, so what happened? Do you know? And he goes, well, I, I, I don't know for sure, but what I assume and what I come to kind of understand is that he'd cleaned himself up and he was on the path uh, to getting his life back. And then for some reason or another decided to take it for another run at a relapse at a relapse. And what he did was he went back to using the amount he was using when he quit. Right. And that happens a lot here uh, because People to understand with addiction uh, comes a tolerance. And so back in the 20s when seven beers would work for me, uh, by the time I ended up quitting, it was anywhere from 18 to 24. Yeah. Right. Your body habituates or gets used to that, so your tolerance increases. So now I've been sober for four and a half years. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine if I went back and tried to drink 18 and 24? I'd get alcohol poisoning and most likely die. Yep. And I think that's what happens a lot of times. Well, I know that's what happens. It's even a little bit more complicated than that. So your brain, so especially with illicit drugs like shooting heroin or something like that, Mm -hmm. your brain will start to associate people, places, and time with use. So people don't, they they don't have a variety of places they use heroin. They usually have one or two places that they use most often. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so... When you go into those places, if you're a user, a regular user, and let's say you always use in your bedroom, then your brain, as you even move in, starts to anticipate that use is coming. And so it prepares itself for for the the dose that you're going to give it. But what will often happen is when a person uses in an unfamiliar place with unfamiliar people at the same dose, their brain isn't ready for it. And so it's not just that over time, but even situations you can create an overdose because you catching your brain unaware and it's not prepared for the level of, in this case, in my example, heroin that it might use. Isn't that interesting? So it's not just if you took a break and then you go back to that same dose, which is very deadly, but it can also be, especially with drugs like heroin, can also be the situation and, you know, the place where you do it. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Uh, for at least the first year and a half out of uh, treatment for me, if I heard the cracking of a soda pop, mm-hmm. I instantaneously thought of a beer. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I thought in my head was, somebody's about ready to have a good time. And, and that happened for about a year and a half. Did you also have like a physiological response, oh, yeah, like no, in it, your it mouth? Was, oh, and I mean, like I wasn't like feeling. Pavlov. I wasn't salivating, but, yeah. I, but I would be like, 
kind yeah, of get excited. A little adrenaline rush, a yeah. little boost. I'd be like, oh, cool. Yeah, so so that those can we get conditioned to things like that, like a sound for sure. Yeah. Now, if I hear a soda pop, I yell into the kitchen, Bowden, how many soda pops is that for you? <laughs> That's <laughs> you know? what you're conditioned to now. It's yeah, like, like, hey, bro, you, you can't be <laughs> limiting a that caffeine. That yeah. Sprite Zero, bro. You got to pump the brakes a little bit. Well, at least it's Sprite Zero. Yeah, but then my girlfriend put one of those, uh, all those different flavorings in there and stuff like that. So it's like having a fizz in our house. Oh. And so they're pumping yeah. mango in there. And I'm off soda. Really? Yeah. No, I'm off soda. How's that doing? It's great. I I was on. I was addicted to soda. I think for many years. But you're. Are you doing tea? I uh, I drink. I drink tea in the morning. Usually, there's yeah. caffeine in tea. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, were you? But it's there's. It's not just ca- There's so much in soda that's bad for oh, you yeah. beyond just caffeine. Well, a little caffeine something. can be good for you. Pour a Coca Cola in your toilet and let it sit for 24 <laughs> hours. What'll happen? Oh, it's not pretty. Yeah. No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well. I'm just telling you, and it'll eat through a pie tin. Yeah. Well, no. TikTok tells me it will. If, well, if it's on TikTok, it's true. That's right. I'm sure. TikTok hates you. Yeah, I know they do. <laughs> it's because they're dumb. TikTok is dumb. <laughs> so, hey. Uh, <laughs> Josh just had a problem with that. Yeah, he's our producer and our social media coordinator. Yeah, well. Uh, hey, do you have uh, Matt's Mental Minute for us? Yeah, I do. I, I'm not given any choices today. I just had some interesting fun facts that I think you're going to like because you don't drink alcohol anymore. I got it. Now, you know, pre, you know, I, I have to say this is from the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction. Hey. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Hey. A little soft um, there, eh? <laughs> a little bit. So this is what I, I have a quiz, though. Anybody in the room can answer. We're okay. Have a, we have a quiz here. But a couple of uh, interesting facts. Do you want me to answer this as if I was drinking or now that I don't? You'll see. No, no, no. It's, okay. a, it's just a, it's just do you know kind of thing, whether okay. you're drinking or not. But consuming one or two standard drinks weekly uh, tends to not have any negative alcohol-related consequences. One to two standard drinks. True. Okay, that's not the quiz. We're not there yet. Okay. Yeah, but yes, well done. Somebody get that man a prize. Uh, Three to six drinks raises the risk of developing breast, colon, and other cancers. We've talked about that before on the show. If you Mm -hmm. want to get cancer, drink drink three to six drinks a week. That increases your risk a lot. I don't think we put it in that exact way, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a dare. Please don't. Uh, Seven or more drinks per week increases not only the cancer risk, but heart disease and stroke. Okay. And each drink beyond that radically increases health consequences. So, you know, the more you drink, the more health consequences you have. My my quiz, so that's not a surprise. I think we all kind of knew that. But it is interesting that there's a difference between cancers and heart disease. And you have to think about like, well, if you're a drinker, how many drinks do you have per week? And all of that. But you've always got that lady with a glass of red going, my doctor said this is good for my heart. So let's talk about that. So what it says, one to two standard drinks weekly doesn't have negative alcohol consequences. But it doesn't say have benefits. Well, we're not talking about that. The Canadians didn't address that in this particular study. My question, the quiz part, now we're here, Mm -hmm. is what's one standard drink? Because we're using that as, as a measurement. Do we know what that is? Do you know... Beer, I have info on beer, wine, and spirits. So beer would be 12 ounces. Wow. Nailed it. Yes, that oh, is one drink. <laughs> I went to rehab for Bud Light, Holy bro. cow. Yeah. I, was, I didn't even Light. finish the question. Red wine would be eight ounces. 
Five. Five ounces. Five ounces, yeah. And uh, uh, would be one ounce shot for for alcohol. One and a half. Yeah. Utah just barely adopted that half. It used to be back in the olden days when you people- could only get a one ounce shot, right? Or you, and then you'd get a sidecar and you'd try to do it. But mm-hmm. back even before that in the cowboy days, you'd go three fingers. So people go, I want three fingers of Levitt. And that meant- that was your measurement on a glass. How many ounces with that? That's a lot. So that was a, that was a standard pour back then. But you could do two fingers or one finger, and right. that's how they measured drinks back in the old back day. in the old in the old days in the yeah. wild wild west. Yeah. Well, so if you think about one and a half ounces, that's not that much. No. For a drink, for somebody who drinks regularly, that's one drink. And if you have seven or more of those, you're at high in a whole week. You're at a very high risk for heart disease and cancer. I remember my mom. That's would, most drinkers, don't yeah. you think? Oh, don't, don't you think that's most drinkers drink more than that in a week? When I was active in my addiction, my mom found Google and started Googling things. Uh-huh. And she calls me up. She was like, you're a binge drinker. <laughs> you're a binge drinker. <laughs> and so she, You're like, she, yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I was trying to fight it at the time, but she had information like you armed in hand and was yeah. ready to go down to it. But I think most people are binge drinkers. I mean, I was always in awe of somebody who could sit down and have two beers. Yeah. I was like, why would you do that? What's what's that? This is a dumb question. Is it is an ounce of is a can of beer sixteen ounces? Is twelve that, ounces. Tw- that's a twelve ounce. So one can is yeah, okay. Twelve ounces. Yeah. Are you sure? Pretty sure. Does anybody have one? It's twelve ounces. No. Okay. It's twelve, it's 12 ounces. Because we used to All say right. we're doing the twelve ounce curls. Oh, okay. But I, if you think about it, how about the wine drinkers? You were picking on them. Yeah. Five ounces of wine. That's that's like a glass. It's the kind of just the bottom. Right. Of the, yeah. That's like a regular pour of wine. Mm-hmm. But how about the person who drinks one every night with dinner? Right. That would be seven. Yeah. Now you're at risk for heart disease. I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting. I I just thought that was interesting and a little shocking because most of the people that drink, I think, drink at least that much during the week. You know what I find even more, uh, and I'm not advocating this, but nobody ever does this. There's no school or there's nobody who sits you down and teaches you to drink like a gentleman. There's, there, I mean, there's no education when it comes to it. Well, there used to be a program like that, and AA sort of squashed them out back in the 60s. There used to be a, a national program like that. Everything I ever learned about drinking was, one, from my parents, two, from my friends, and three, from my experiences. And, yeah. and, and, and there was nobody that was ever going, hey, this is the responsible way to do this. You know, uh, this is the goal. Yeah. I, like I used to say everybody, I was like, I was always out drinking everybody because I thought it was a race and I thought I was always winning. Yeah. I mean, I really did. I thought, I was like, well, if one's going to be good, three's going to be great, 12's going to well, be awesome. Well, let's face it, like when you're a kid and, and you're drinking for the first time, you're a teenager or a young adult, you're not drinking because you enjoy the taste of beer. No. You're getting you're drinking to get drunk. For the euphoric. Yeah. So I'm not sure those programs would work to teach you to drink like a child. And to be honest, uh we're, we're roughly the same age or a little bit older. Um but we grew up wiser. We grew up in the eighties and those T V shows celebrated the recklessness of teenagers and young adults overindulging. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, that's oh, yeah, what yeah. all those shows were, and those are the people that you I emulated. That's those are the people that I wanted to so be. So that's funny you bring that up because I've been nerding out and watching the the Battlestar Galactica again. Yeah. Not the original eighties seventies series, but the the one with Edward James almost. Uh huh. They are drinking brown liquor in that in almost every scene. You go back and watch any show. You, I mean, you watch right now today. For example, you watch Yellowstone. Yeah, oh, they are Yellowstone. Drinking, they are drinking whiskey nonstop. In almost every scene. And you can tell that they're plugging it because you can see it's like, oh, that's Bullet. Oh, that's Maker's Mark. You can see the bottles. But you never see anybody wasted. 
But there, no, that's true. I mean, every once in a while you'll see the girl wasted, and you'll see some bit. people, but Beth. not, but not for the most part. And they are yeah. drinking nonstop, and yeah. it's not one ounce. No, they're they're heavy pours. Yeah, yeah, you know, and so, but you never see the wreck the wreckage of that drinking. Yeah. It's always celebrated like this is what we do. Yeah, I was just wondering how they get so much liquor in space. Right. That was my question. Like, you know, the they're steals. on the run. Yeah. Cylons are after them. They still have full bottles of liquor all you over the place. You lost me at Cylons, Dort. <laughs> you totally <laughs> lost me at Cylons. Hey, we've got a great show for you today. I want to introduce you to a friend of the program. Uh, his name is Andrew Red. But your brother calls you... Droopy. He calls you Droopy. <laughs> Droopy. And you might know his brother because he's been on the yeah. podcast a couple of times. And he's, he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to recovery. His name is John Red. Right. Uh, and he said that you'd be a, a wonderful person to have on the podcast. So before we find out about that, um, how many brothers are there in the Red family? There's five of us. How many are in recovery? Three of us. Um, Maybe four. <laughs> now, I want to ask you, Dr. Matt, is like, I think it's pretty common to have uh, siblings or family members in addiction. We don't know that many people that in recovery. Right. Well, addiction, unfortunately, uh, you know, most people who really struggle with an addiction aren't in recovery. That's why it's such an epidemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's great when you can have family and close friends support each other and try to pull everybody along into the world of recovery. So that maybe that's what you guys are doing. Hopefully that's uh, that's not initially how it started, but that's where we're at today. Good. So we'll take it where it's at today. And so... Were you dragged into addiction or did you walk into addiction? I walked into addiction. I, I chose addiction at a very young age and in in my family influence affected that. So that's another thing is we have biological inherited tendencies towards mental health issues, including addiction. But we always discount the amount of modeling and learning that goes on in our families, like, you know, to be depressed, to be anxious or to be an addict. And so we see that sort of behavior modeled along with a biological predisposition. And those two things combined can create a lot of addiction running in families, so to speak. Well, I think this is going to be an amazing episode. You're listening to Project Recovery coming up. Andrew Red's story and uh, Droopy. Droopy. You stick around. More will be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willier. Our guest today is Andrew Red, or as his big brother calls him, Droopy. 
Uh, you said uh, there's a couple brothers in recovery and a couple people trying to figure stuff out. But where does the story of Andrew Red begin? Yeah, so we'll go Drew Red. Okay. Some people call me Andrew. Most people call me Droopy. What did the police uh, officers call you? <laughs> Probably Mr. Droopy. Red. All the school teachers <laughs> called me Droopy. Put your hands on yeah. the car, Mr. Red. Yeah. Andrew. Just don't give him a name at that time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm grateful to be here. I, I found out, one, that I have uh, a bad heart. My heart's failing, and I have cancer based on the drinks <laughs> okay. I've consumed like, in my life. I'm looking at you like, maybe you shouldn't be here. And I'm a believer in hope. Yeah. When I got out of treatment, I went to Gen X. I got a, a pro club tall white tee, and I had them write hope on the front. And I used to wear that to 12-step meetings my first year in recovery. So, oh, How long awesome. have you been sober? So my sobriety date's July 21st of 2013. Wow. So you got some years behind Co- you. Coming up on a, a little, decade. A little bit of so experience. That's a big celebration. Yeah, and, and, and I still feel fresh, and I'm grateful for that. And so much in the fact that you're working at a recovery center, Ardu, which is in Provo, mm-hmm. uh, a great program. We're going to hear about that a little bit towards the end of the podcast. But we always like to know a little bit about the beginning, uh, where you grew up, you know, a little bit about how you got introduced to drugs, Was it, you know, just kind of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So so we're in this building right here. Told you earlier, my dad was the CLO for Bonneville International. Grew up in Farmington, Utah, and, and had every opportunity given to me as a kid. Had the go-karts, had the any sporting event I wanted to be a part of, I played. Um, had four older brothers who were very active and popular, and they, they developed a reputation and just had an awesome upbringing, anything any kid would want. Did, did your brother's reputation, uh, at first, was it uh, It was one of popularity and it was cool? It was what, cool. Was it always that way? Yeah, my brothers were always cool. You know, I think toward the end, I, I saw it different. But growing up, I had cool older brothers and I wanted to compete with them. I wanted to be like, I wanted to be better than them. Mm-hmm. And so they, some did sports, some did drugs, some did um they played the piano and we skied a lot as a family. And I, I always wanted to be the best. Like I always loved competing and improving myself to my, to my older brothers. I've got a family of uh, three brothers or two brothers. I've got an older and a younger. And I always tell people when I'm describing my family, it's like my older brother, Yancey, he knew there was a line. Then there was me who walked on the line. And then there was my little brother who was 30 <laughs> yards past the line. He's and I don't know. Somebody said something about a line, but I didn't hear it because he was always so past. But it yeah. was also because he was the same way. He wanted to do what we were doing. Well, younger siblings often are the most competitive in families. And so when you look at professional athletes, you'll often find that they had an older sibling that they competed with. Yeah. It's, it's, it's less common for a real standout pro athletes to be the oldest in the family for that very reason. Mm. So do you remember the first time you tried uh, alcohol or drugs? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so let me tell you this. If, if we're talking about the upbringing, about um, the decision to drink alcohol and the decision to go down that route, um, we've talked about my brother, John. He's nine, nine and a half years older, nine years older than me. And, uh, when I was probably about nine years old, our parents sit us down. We're the, we're the family where the dad's the bishop, the mom's the Relief Society president, dad's an attorney, mom's a teacher, um, Every beautiful house. Cover of Enzyme. Be- perfect. Looked perfect where our family sits us down. I'm 
believe I'm nine years old at the time, and they say John's going away to Arizona. Like John, John has an issue. He's going to Arizona, and we knew that John was kind of weird because his friends would come around, and they all had long hair. And around that time, my dad took us to Grateful Dead, and some of John's friends were sitting in the lobby, staring at the ground, and <laughs> and uh, so I always knew something was different with John and his friends. But when my parents set us down, and John was going away to Arizona, um, they didn't give specifics. So my little sister and I. I, so I have four older brothers, a little sister. Everyone was very quiet about it. Me and her were just wondering what was going on. We knew something drastic changed in our family. And a few days later, I found out that John was doing drugs, right? And I and I loved John. And I wanted to be like John all growing up. And, and by no means was any of my experience because of John, but around that time in my life is when I made the decision, like, this is what I'm going to do. But you don't think that had anything to do with John? I don't know. Because part of my belief is prior to coming here to earth, like we're all given different challenges. And and one of the things that I accepted and, and wanted to do and was grateful to experience is like, I'll go down to earth and, and I will be a drug addict I will be an alcoholic. I will identify with shame and guilt and self-hate and I'll experience suicidal ideation and I will manipulate and lie so that I can in turn help others. So like a preordination predestination. I, I believe that for myself 100%. Okay. And you're not the first person that I've heard say that in the recovery world, that these trials and tribulations we have chosen before we even went through them because there was a lesson that needed to be learned or there was a, 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 a teaching moment that would come out of that. Yeah, and maybe I'm crazy, but it, for me now it gives hope. Mm-hmm. Like it, it gives meaning to all of the chaos that happened. It makes sense to you. It makes sense to me. I believe it. I share it. I I think I think the listeners I think that's an interesting concept. I think some of the listeners might be a little confused though why that lends hope. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's that's interesting. It's an interesting concept. So so when I think of the purpose of life for me today, being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, as simple as it can get is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Now, I believe that the most important things that I can do with people today is to love, to help, to serve, to um, show empathy and compassion towards somebody else is, is for me what matters. And without going through the hell and the suffering and the misery that I experienced, whether I put myself through that, whether it was preordained, whatever it was, it's taught me to, to be more aware of those cries. Yeah, of help. So that's that's so we've been talking about hope today. A, a, a related concept is optimism, mm-hmm. and so we often talk about when we have optimism, we feel empowered because we feel like we're choosing the things that we're doing instead of things happening to us. So I could see how that that idea of a preordained kind of life. Now you're on the other side of that, helping other people. It felt you know it feels empowering to you. And I find it refreshing uh, because it's a different take on recovery. And as we've said on this podcast so many times, there's a a million different ways up Sober Mountain. 
And uh, your recovery is your recovery. And if it makes sense to you, it makes sense to you. I mean, I've talked about it before when I was in uh, rehab. Uh, we were standing in a circle, and they brought a shaman in, and they had an elk drum, and they burned sage. And they were blur- blowing sage in our face and bounding on the drum. And in my head, I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. There is no way this is going to help me get sober. If this is what I signed up for, sign me out because I'm not in. And I just remember thinking that. And then we went to bed that night. And uh, during that whole process, the shaman said, you need to wake up every morning and bless your water to the east, the west, the north, and the south. You know, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. And so I go to bed. I come up uh, the next morning. I walk downstairs. And there's two people from my house out back by the river. And they've got water in hand, and they're holding it up, and they're blessing them to the north, south, east, and west. And these guys are getting ready to come in the house. And my first thought was, I'm going to light these fools up. (laughs) I'm just going to light them up. I'm like, well, you guys are idiots. If you think this is going to get you sober. And as they reached to the door, something happened. I don't know what it was, and I didn't say anything. Common sense. Well, I don't have have much of that. (laughs) But I didn't say anything. And I remember thinking, who am I? To take that away from them. If that makes sense to them and that works and that helps them get sober, what kind of jerk would I be to take a crap all over it? Why would I do that? You know what I mean? What, yeah. and, 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 well, what's cool is you had a sample of people and they had that experience together. And two of those people, it really stuck with them. That, was, that was their connection. Mm-hmm. And that's like what you say a lot. There's a lot of different ways up Sober Mountain. Finding something that helps bring you motivation, hope, optimism, doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, and so that's, that's what I like about your take on recovery and, and, and why you ended up being an addict. Back to the point, where does the first time you remember taking drugs and at what age? Yeah, so it was after my ninth grade year going into high school, Davis High School. Um, part of my commitment to being a drug addict and an alcoholic is when dare to not do drugs came to Monta Vista elementary school. Mm-hmm. I fake signed my name to the balloon and sent it to heaven. Cause I had made, I, I knew I was going to party whatever that meant. Cause my older brothers did mm-hmm. and I was going to be like them. And so when the party fake signed, fake signed. It's awesome. <laughs> I didn't I sign. I fake signed. I Kids sent it to so heaven. Sincere. I didn't tell anybody cause I knew what I was doing is, is, uh, I was going to party when that presented itself. And but you had the mindset to where you didn't want to lie. No, I, I didn't. It was my own thing that I knew was just me. I couldn't explain it to anybody. I didn't want to go into therapy at the time, I didn't want any help with it. I just knew that that's what I was going to do. Do you remember what name you signed? I didn't sign any name. Oh, okay. I kept the pen off the paper, <laughs> uh-huh. and I sent it to heaven, but I moved my head. Oh, yeah, it was a fa- oh you faked it out totally. <laughs> yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a, you juked it. Yeah, there was no name. Okay. When I was a kid, I used to sign Bruce Banner to stuff. Yeah. He's what if, a, what if Bruce Hulk. Banner wanted to drink? I, well, you know, he's incredible. Hulk. Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I didn't want to do that, but, yeah, so my, my first experience – Drinking was terrible. I uh, so you've been at just. I sorry to cut you off, but no, like I just want, this is an interesting, very unique sort of. This is the most planned out addiction. I since think since he was in nine so years old. Nine years old, you started thinking about it. By the time you're yeah. in elementary school, I guess you're you're fake signing your name. So had you what made you decide like when the time was right? You said ninth grade. So what was it about? You said ninth? when it first presented itself. When it when when it was available. Okay, so that's all it was. It was just availability. It was just availability. It gotcha. was time. It was 
But your brothers never offered it to you. No. Nope. And by ninth grade, and they, and they kept they kept it very secret themselves. I never heard about my brother's drinking or drug use from them. It was always people in the neighborhood talking about them. Did they drink together? Drug use drugs I, together? Your well, brothers? Well, you'll learn more about okay, that. Right. But <laughs> I'm just that, really into this story. Yeah, no, that's to come. But okay. right, but right now we're ninth at a, grade. We're at a house. Uh-huh. Right off of Oak Ridge Country Club, uh-huh. the other side from where you live, and uh, and parents are out of town, and so one of my buddies, there's four of us, his name's Trevor, he brings over, I believe, a 24-pack of Keystone Light. Right. And in his backpack, we're having a sleepover, and the the kid's house who I was at, his older sisters were there, they were cool, so they didn't care if we drank, and so we popped open the Keystone Light. And started drinking. Equally, we started drinking Keystone Light. Got a buzz. Got drunk. The Keystone Light ran out. And so we called the friend's older brother to bring over some vodka. Okay. At this point, we're eating pineapple, ham and pineapple pizza. I've already broken up with a girl who's not my girlfriend. Her name was her name was Natalie. I broke up with a girl who's not my girlfriend. Natalie had no idea. Somehow she came over to the house. And we're laying in the guest bedroom downstairs listening to Boys to Men. And I'm oh crying. Gosh. This is the best story. And, and, and I'm crying. <laughs> and I'm crying. And the vodka comes over and we and we keep drinking the vodka. Yeah. And we go out on the country club on Oak Ridge. I remember um playing in the sand trap, like uh-huh. falling in the sand trap. And then the next memory that I have is waking up the next morning where I'm laying on his, it's like a burnt orange couch, an older one, uh-huh. maybe velvet. And I got, I've got throw up on my shirt <laughs> and throw up on the couch and it's uh pineapple pizza, oh, Hawaiian pineapple, Hawaiian pizza. <laughs> and then as I sit up, there's throw up on one side of the room, throw up on the other side of the room. Oh. And I was the only one who threw up. <laughs> and I felt terrible and uh, I had a pounding headache and I oh, hated a hundred percent how I felt. And I went upstairs to the kitchen and I found the bottle of vodka, maybe at 10 AM and I took a shot mm. and that was my first experience drinking. See, that's the wow. craziness uh, about the disease and alcohol is, I mean, you just described the world's worst First day, yeah, it was oh, terrible. Yeah. With, with a boys to men soundtrack, yeah, terrible. Yeah. And then you that woke was up. the good part. Yeah. That was the good part. <laughs> that tells you a lot if that's the good part. Yeah. And then you woke up and and realized you had a bad time, but decided to go back to the. What bottle. made you at that? Yeah, like with all that you just described, what made you decide to have a, a drink it in the morning? Because I was committed to it since I was a little kid. Wow, that is dedication. I was I was committed to. I'm going to party and what it meant after I felt what I felt, um, I was going to party and I, and I believe the alcoholism, the disease develops far earlier than when you take your first drink. So if I have the disease of addiction, I don't know when that would have started, but I had alcohol tendencies from whenever I remember. So after that first night, how quick did you take to partying? Every day. Every day after that first night, I had a substance in my body 
um, to make me feel different. Wow. It, it was, it was a full commitment to, um, smoking weed. It was a full commitment to getting alcohol. It was a full commitment to, uh, pain medications and like any prescriptions that people would give me. I, I never turned down a prescription or asked, what is this? And that's so dangerous, right? Because as a kid, you wouldn't know what combination of things could be lethal or deadly. Did you ever worry about that? No, I didn't care. There, there was, there was no worry about what I was putting into my body because at that time it was like, I just want to feel different. Was, was there a self-destructive aspect to that? Like, did you feel like, you know, sometimes kids struggle with depression, suicidal thoughts. Maybe they want to sort of just push their limits, see what happens to them, sort of, don't care about their safety or was it more, I just want to party. That's yeah. I was just, I just want to party because okay. I, I was happy and okay. I, and I was probably popular and I was good at sports and I was athletic and I had a lot of friends and, um, I was spoiled in the house. Like my parents, by the time they already raised four brothers, yeah. I got to do whatever I wanted. They're tired by that. Yeah. Right? They were tired. Yeah. They were traveling. I, I yeah. got to do, I had free reign of the basement at the Red House. And you're listening to Drew's story here on Project Recovery. We're going to find out where it goes after this. But after just one night of party, and he said, how long a span did you go where you had at least a substance in your body at all time? True. I went 15 years straight. There was, I served an LDS mission during that time. And so there was, there was year plus during that, that experience where I, I didn't have a substance in my body, but 15 years is what I say. We're going to find out more about that. You're listening to Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. We're talking with Drew Red, uh, and he talked about his first experience of trying alcohol, listening to boys and men eating pineapple pizza on the burnt orange velvet couch, ending up with uh, puke everywhere. Uh, then you said you had about a fifteen-year run where every day you had substance in your body. You had free reign of the red basement because your parents had gone through four older brothers. Uh, kind of, you know, going through their stuff, and so it was kind of a free for all for you when you got to the high school. Yeah, I I had cars I could drive, parents on vacation. Did you do you remember when you started partying and you let your brothers know that you were partying and do you remember the response? Yeah, my the first one was my hair started falling out, so I started getting insecure and and Matt who's my mom's favorite, he's a he's a gastroenterologist. Mm-hmm. Um and he told me that my hair was falling out because I did drugs. Mm-hmm. That was his response. <laughs> um, one t- one time in high school, one of the unique responses I got is I had come up on a bunch of pain meds, um, had Oxycontin. And I didn't know the difference between Oxycontin, Percocet, Hydrocodone, but I had maybe a couple hundred and... Um, was telling was telling my brothers about them and and two of my brothers said, "Well, I like those. I like those too." And so I felt really cool being able to share. And so the response was was good. Um yeah, there were some negative responses. One of my brothers served a mission in Singapore when he came home, he uh went and searched down by the waterbed downstairs and I had two bottles of vodka on the side of the waterbed and and he poured them out. 
Um, I think he took like a porno magazine too. Uh huh. But and he threw it away. But that was kind of the main response. I my brother Matt was was the most concerned at times because he was right older than me and he'd try to talk with me, but I was so closed off about what was really going on. Like I could tell my friends they knew, but whenever my family asked about why I was behaving how I was, um, I I would lie. I I wouldn't be honest. I remember my dad and my dad one time I had, I had taken a bunch of uh, cough suppressants mm-hmm. um, and going upstairs to grab something and he, and he says, are you on dope? I said, no, I'm good. And they knew, but I, I just couldn't be honest with any of them. So it wasn't really a conversation. Did you get in a lot of trouble in your high school years or did you stay active in sports and popularity or did that start to fall away? No, I got in trouble. So um, going into Davis High right off, I, I was pretty wild. Um, played football, was really sick from the summer leading up to football. So during Hell Week, like threw up a lot. and, and Sick from using. Sick from using, drinking, just All that. Okay. everything. Um and sophomore year was decent. You know, sophomore year I was introduced um, just to everything. It was it was Davis County, Davis High, party drugs was the Robitussin, was the core seed in. So you guys were C talking over about C plus this C. Off, off air that like there's a little. So Casey's from Ogden. Mm-hmm. And for people then just south of Ogden, you got Davis County. Mm-hmm. And the the cultural differences in what teenagers used back then it's interesting to me in my high school it was you know it was there wasn't marijuana it was just alcohol and mostly just beer and i remember the time i moved down to davis county for one semester and i ran into these guys and and they were all drinking cough syrup and they were like do you want some and i was like no i don't have a cough and no it isn't but that's what they used so drew that was part of the culture of davis high school was that that kind of stuff i think so uh a lot of closet partying, I would say, for most family, because you have this massive LDS community. Right. Um, you smell alcohol, you smell weed, but you can't smell pills. Mm-hmm. You can't smell cough syrup. There's certain things you can't smell, and so maybe low key you can you can keep it more. Secretive. And back in the day, cough right. syrup yeah. was a lot more accessible. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. You didn't have to. You they could, wouldn't you, ID you. Yeah, or you didn't have to be twenty-one. Right. You could just go in and, and buy it. Or a lot of times, kids were. But stealing. that's an interesting cultural difference in use. Like the the tendency to use is there, the drive to use is there, but what our cultural parameters are that determines what we use. Years ago, I would say maybe almost twenty years ago, there was a documentary called Happy Valley, mm-hmm. and that was about pill use and prescription drug use in in Utah County. And that's a highly dense LDS population, just like Davis County is slash was back in the day. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a surprise to me that something that's seen as a medication would be more thought of to abuse than like, like you said, maybe there's less access to alcohol, less access to weed, but, but weed and alcohol you can smell, and those are illegal to buy when you're a teen, but a teen can go in and get some Robitussin or steal some pills from grandpa's cabinet, that kind of thing. It's just interesting to me that the tendency, the drive to be an addict is there regardless of your religious perspective or cultural beliefs, but yet how it comes out is uh, is very cultural, and a lot of times I think that's mirrored by the people we learn from. And I grew right. up in a yeah. blue 
blue collar community and it yeah. was and it was beer and it was back of trucks and it was parking lots you know yeah. and that's and that's where it was interesting so you said you had about a 15 year run of hard using uh, but you said you took a two year hiatus uh, you said 18 months uh to go on an LDS mission. Well, wait, I want to find out what happened with football, though, because you've mentioned sports with and football a lot, high school football stuff. Did Did you make it through? Did you play all the so, years? So this is what happened. Um, this is what happened. <laughs> this is what happened. <laughs> Whenever an um, addict says that, something's good about it. No, that so, sophomore year was decent. Sophomore yeah. year was fun. Sophomore year, um, I, I was the kid in school who could rap better than the seniors. Um, I was, I was crazy. I was living. Davis up, County's known for their rap. Yeah. yeah some awesome rappers <laughs> in Davis County and in Utah in general. Yeah. Um, but I, I was having fun. I was exposed to this, um, to girls, to just outside of the neighborhood. I was the dude who people would tell me I, I jumped off a roof naked into a pool of seniors and it was awesome, and <laughs> and I was I was that dude, and I was just down for whatever. And, and you had accomplished what you set out to accomplish when you were nine years old. Yeah, you become the party guy. I wanted to be the man. Yeah, and the party guy, and I was there for a good time. And um, no, my so I believe it was my sophomore year of high school, and you're talking about getting in trouble with the law. Um, I started getting. Um, Alcohol tickets. MIPs. Yeah. Minor in Minor possession. Minor in possession. And uh, Davis High is full of a bunch of really tough kids. If if you're not aware of that, now you know the, <laughs> the toughest, meanest. Um, and so one day, I believe after a basketball game, um, this could have been my junior year, we were going to fight Leighton. And so we had we had set up to fight Leighton at a park, and um, Leighton didn't show up. And so me and a few of my buddies, my girlfriend at the time, um, were were looking to instigate something. And so we go to to Burger King across the street from Dalton Elementary School. My friend goes in to get food. He picks a fight with the guy in Burger King, an older guy with his uh, little brother who goes to Davis High, and. Um, they were going to fight in the parking lot. I was the driver of the car. Um, they came out screaming, the the Burger King employees. And so this guy left, and we followed him. And I followed him in my car up toward Kaysville, Fruit Heights area. He's stopping. He he goes to his house. And, uh, and I guess we're getting close to his house. And so as we're coming up on this guy, he gets out of his car and starts running at my car. And so I, I'm... Who knows what's going on that night? Who knows what I'm doing? Um, in my head, he has he has something in his hand, and like so, he's really wanting to fight. And so I I keep driving. Um, thought I missed him. I end up hitting him with my car. Oh. He went over the car. There was a car behind us who saw it. I took off. A few days later, um, I'm in the police station telling this story, and at that moment with. I don't know what I was charged with at the time. My dad, like I said, was an attorney. He handled um, a lot of, a lot of, unfortunately he had to handle a lot of my stuff, but I was put on house arrest my junior year of high school. So the majority of my junior year, I was, I was on house arrest. And so when you talk about depression leading to addiction, like that time was really dark. I stopped playing football, um, stayed on the tennis team. 
um, that was the time where if I, I couldn't take alcohol or smoke weed or, or other things that would show up on a drug test. And so that's when the, uh, the cough suppressants, the Robitussin became very effective on a daily basis to stay numb um, and get through that period of my life. But during that time, I, I would sneak out. I got more alcohol tickets. I think I got a, an arrest from trying to steal uh, primetime cigars from Chevron in Centerville. And, uh, you know, if it, there were a lot of circumstances that played out in my life where I could have very well been the kid who went to juvenile. I could have been shipped off to go to wilderness program. You know, I thought that was going to happen, but, um, probably thanks to my dad and, and his relationships and his knowledge, I, I was able to stay in the home and continue at Davis high school. But, but your older brother got sent to a program. Yeah. Why do you think your parents didn't, did they feel like that program wasn't effective for John? So I'll, well, I'll tell you my, my mom still apologizes to my wife or did that. She didn't send me to a program. <laughs> she still apologizes. For she, that. she did. Yeah. She did. Um, you know, I've been, I've been married 15 years, um, sober over nine years and, absolutely my mom has told my wife like i i wish i would have done more true okay all right so, well that's hard you know parents that's all in retrospect they do their best i guess yeah they're the best parents yeah what about can i ask what happened to the man you hit i don't i don't want to know i don't want to say i i know that's that okay. there were some things that were handled outside of court um but, but he lived i think he's okay yeah okay I hope he's okay. And, and, and that's like, that's an amends. That's something that I live with. Um, well, you're a 12 step guy. You're an AA yeah, guy. And yeah. so that's a big part of, you know, taking responsibility and making amends. And, yeah. and unfortunately you make that combination of drugs and alcohol being intoxicated with a teenager and that's combustible. You oh, know? just and, impulsivity. And, yeah. It's a, it's a, that's a lot of people who throughout their adult life, have regrets about things they did because of that combination when yeah. they were young. So you're on house arrest your junior year. Yep. Uh, you get to go back to school your senior year? Well, I, I got to go to school during that time. I just couldn't leave the house after okay. school. And so senior year, they kinda, the, it, the world opens back up to you? Not really. I Senior year was, was similar. I, I got back on the football team. Love playing football. I remember Coach Jim Dixon brings me in because I said the F word, like rallying the team up. Yeah. And and I and I would go to football. Context. Yeah, in a positive <laughs> context. And I would go to football and oh and I got a tattoo in Cancun on my back. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, we what's it on? What's the tattoo I, of? Dude, um <laughs> Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> so, so, so I got I got the Japanese symbol for love, and initially, In so my my parents and my little sister they they went to go see the ruins, and I wanted to stay back, and so I snuck off to the tattoo shop, yeah. and I wanted to get a tattoo that that they couldn't see, and I wanted to get what I thought was cool, and Alan Iverson. And all these athletes were starting to get these Japanese oh, yeah. um, symbols on their bodies, and and I liked how love looked, and I I believed in love. I like I, although throughout my using, like I I tried to treat people decent, you know, and for the most part, 
I'm probably lying to myself when I say that, but I think I did. So yeah, in Cancun, I, I got a tattoo on my lower back. Some people call it a tramp stamp. I don't, <laughs> but, but I, I'm just thankful because he initially had a son. I kept it secret for about a year and a half until my mom came to wake me up one morning and she, she woke me up with a a wet wash rag trying to scrub it off <laughs> hoping it was a sharpie so i so i had to get some more added to it so it didn't look it didn't look so bad so then you decide you're gonna go on a mission was uh what was your thought process behind that oh there was no thought process so high school completed while in high school um what i would tell myself and others is i'm gonna stop mm-hmm. when i'm done i'm i'm my experience and my craziness is going to help me to help others. I'll be able to relate to my kids more. And and you know what? That's that's not the first time we've heard that. You know what yeah. I mean? That people were going to use that two year break as a way to get back on track. You know, they, they've they've kind of gone through that in their life. They experienced it, and now they're going to get back to what they the mission or high school mission. Oh, so so high school. I thought that, but I didn't stop. Post high school, I got. I got introduced to Oxycontin 80s. Mm-hmm. I got introduced to an illegal doctor. I got introduced to a game where I could make a lot of money and feed my addiction and help my friends have a good time. Um, the mission didn't come about. So when I was eight, so I'm trying to think, I was 17, um, no, 18, and life was really dark, bad. Um, my mom pulled me aside and said, hey, let's let's find something for you to do. And so I said, I'm, I'm fair. I, I want to leave here. I'll go where I'll leave. And uh, she found this, this orphanage support group in Ecuador called OSO. And it's done by a doctor out of uh, Rexburg, Idaho. A lot of LDS kids would go there. And so I went to Quito, Ecuador for four months when I was 18, um, to try to get away from how I was living back at home. I was the only, I was the only dude in Quito, Ecuador. There was another guy, Sam, who stayed half the time. And while in Ecuador, um, one of my brothers is like, man, they got, they got like coating syrup out there and they got things you can get at the pharmacy. And so, um, I was, I was still trying to feel better because I didn't know how to function without a substance. And so, Went to Ecuador for four months, came home, um, committed that to myself that things would be different. They weren't. Went back to Ecuador with my parents and my little sister over um, Christmas and New Year's of uh, 2020, or oh, sorry, 2000. And while in Ecuador, I had this feeling leading out there that I was going to meet a girl. Things with my girlfriend, who I grew up having as a girlfriend. Um, they, they were non-existent. My self-worth was so terrible. And I had this thought, I'll meet, I'll meet a girl in Ecuador. And, and I knew it was going to happen. It was the weirdest thing ever go to Ecuador. Um, and that's when I met this girl walking down the stairs. So beautiful. Um, and she was the one I, I'm married to her today, but I met, really? wow. I met her that's in Ecuador cool. She's walking down the stairs. I'm walking upstairs. The chain of events that happen while I'm drinking the, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to drink the the cooking wine. And, and I did that while out there just trying to f- fill the escape. So the mission came about um, 
after I had gotten back from Ecuador, she was she she's from Los Angeles. Drove out to Los Angeles, made a fool of myself. My friends got trashed. Went to a Snoop Dogg party. Me and her hung out. <laughs> went back to the parents' house. Went back to her parents' house, and and her little sisters come down and just reeks of alcohol. And, and they're not a family that drinks or uses or ever ever had in their home. And so it was, a, it was a really bad display. And so we hopped in my Honda Accord, drove back to Utah. Her and I stayed in communication, and and um. One day she calls and says, hey, what are you doing tonight? And there was a kager and Bountiful and um, said, oh, just probably hanging out at a friend's house. What's going on? She said, do you want to hang out? I'm in town. And so her and her dad drove up from from Los Angeles to Bountiful to go see her grandpa who lived in Bountiful. And so I hung out with her all night and didn't drink, for sure had other substances in my body. But she says to me, uh, why haven't you gone on a mission? And I'm I'm twenty twenty years old at the time. Why haven't you gone on a mission? I said, you know, made up some lies. Like I tried, I wasn't able to. Um, I wasn't able to go. And she said, I ju- I just see it as being obedient to Heavenly Father. And so that's all she said. And we kind of hung out a little bit longer. I went home that night. It's three a.m. Um, my mom's on the couch. I walk in the door. She asks how it went. She said. Hey, Bishop Hinckley um, called and, and is seeing if you can go in tomorrow at 7.30. And so I am said, yeah, I can go in. And so got a, got a few hours of sleep. Went to the bishop's interview that next morning and he said, hey, I just have a strong prompting that you should go on a mission. And I said, me too. This is what happened last night. Let's do it. He said, is there anything preventing you from going? I said, well... Again, I, I can't be honest with myself or others. I said, well, I, I use pain pills occasionally, and but I can stop. And, and I was fully committed to stop. Um, but I, I didn't know the severity of the disease. I, I definitely was not, un, was not able to. Well, it sounds like you'd been using so regularly for so long. I mean, just by not being honest about it, you would have, eventually, you would have had to try to cold turkey and that's that can be dangerous if you're using all these variety Deadly. of substances. Oh, I cold turkey. Yeah, I definitely cold turkeyed. Yeah. Well, you're uh, listening to Drew's story here on Project Recover. We're going to find out what happens when he goes on this mission and what great things he's doing for the recovery community after. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Project Recovery. Our guest today, Drew, is an amazing storyteller. He's talked about the first time he was drinking, listening to Boys to Men, puking up pineapple pizza. Oh, then um, he went to L.A. to meet a girl, party with Snoop Dogg. <laughs> Ecuador to yeah. meet a girl. Ecuador <laughs> to meet a girl. <laughs> L.A. for Snoop Dogg. But last we heard, you were talking to your mom and the bishop, and you yep. decided to go on a mission. Yep. And uh, you told him a little bit about your drug use, not completely honest, but as honest as you could be. Yep. As honest as I could be at the time. And so you go on a mission. How was the experience? It was amazing. It was an amazing experience. I I had told myself that I would stop using Oxycontin prior to going. I had made promises. I had prayed. I had attempted to, and I wasn't able to. Um, the mission call got closer. The farewell happened. Um, everything came to be to the day where I'm going on the mission and I still am, am using Oxycontin, putting it up my nose. And, and so 
I went to the MTC and I, I, you know, had maybe 10 Oxycontin 80s and I had one uh, Suboxone 8 milligram and I was off for a new adventure, you know, and, and I knew I was doing a good thing. And so I, I get into the MTC. I'm there. It's a nine week because I'm learning Spanish. Nine weeks in the MTC have the coolest guys around me. Um, I'm I'm active in my addiction the first little bit. I have an awesome companion like Elder Jones, mm-hmm. where I'd go to the bathroom because I needed some time to myself to to take care of what I needed to do, and he'd be outside of the stall waiting and like Elder Reddy, okay? Like yeah, yeah. Give me a minute and. Uh, I think uh, for the listeners who don't know, if you're going on a mission, you get assigned a companion. Yeah. And and in the MTC, they can be a little clingy because it, it's new. Yeah. And and I remember yelling at my companion, like, get out of here. I can go to the bathroom by myself. He, <laughs> yeah. he didn't like that. But Elder yeah. Jones, he, he took it seriously. It Elder like, Jones yeah. is awesome. And when you're going on a mission, you don't go on a mission addicted to substances. Typically, no. Yeah. Right. It's That's, not, it's not, it's not the, the idea. Yeah. So. Yeah, the the experience there. Um, but eventually, you, you have to you run talk out of about your. I ran out. Um, I split a, a suboxone up over two days, and I remember there was about a day and a half where I felt terrible, but I still showed up. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't sick to the extent where I couldn't show up, and and I knew that I was going to do a mission. And, and part of that motivation was uh, my friend Jameson sent me a letter when I was in the MTC, and he said, uh, "Hey, man, there's." there's a list of uh, a lot of people have thrown in the over under of how long Drew's going to stay on his mission. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of people are, are trying to say when you're going home, but just so you know, I like, I believe that you can do this. And so that was really cool. And it's like, dude, regardless of the shame that I feel, how guilty I feel for not being honest for, being what I thought was bad or cursed at the time, despite anything, I'm not going home. And so after nine, after nine weeks in the MTC, which was awesome. And I go in there dope sick and put on 40 plus pounds from the MTC food. My, my suit no longer fits me. I go to uh, Johnson city, Tennessee and have the coolest companion. He went to Davis high. One of the, someone I respect and love so much. And we're in the, fr- my first area, I get a call the family at some point. So they have the number to the apartment and about a month into the mission, I get a phone call from my brother, John. John says, Hey man, it, it's really bad here. So what do you mean it's bad? And he says, the doctor got busted and everybody's getting arrested. And this, this drug ring that I was a part of getting Oxycontin 80s in Salt Lake city went down right after I got into the mission field. And so I call up my mission president and they say, Hey, this is what's going on. And he said, elder red, you're where you're supposed to be. You don't go home. If you need to talk to any FBI agents or anybody, I'll talk with you, but you're where you're supposed to be. And so while I was on a mission in, in Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, everybody's going to jail. Who was a part of this drug ring and and I feel like a phony, but again, I'm not going home. Like no way at that time was I going to go to rehab. I'm going on a mission because that's the omen that came. That's how the universe aligned itself. And I and I served my butt off. I worked as hard as I could. I 
I really learned how to love people, connect, help. And, uh, and, and for sure, while out there, I still have the disease of addiction. So when we're at people's homes and, and they're talking about their pain pill use and offering us some to the missionaries, it's like, yeah, my back hurts too. You know, I was, I was playing, I got a hitchhiker's thumb. I was playing goalie, um, in Georgia, I was playing goalie with some kids. Me and my companion is an awesome soccer player. I broke my thumb and, and of course the, the lower tab make my stomach hurt. So I had to eat all of those in two days and the Percocet. So I called in like uh, the lower tab makes my stomach hurt. Can I get Percocet? And mm-hmm. I, the Percocet doesn't make me feel good. Can I get anything else? And, and milk that. And the, the obsession of my mind to use substances was still there. So that's interesting because on the one hand, you've kind of dodged this bullet back in Salt Lake City. You felt like this is an omen. I should be where I'm supposed to be. You're working really hard as a missionary, yet that addict mind is still just plaguing you all along. But an addict will find a way. Yeah. That, that, that's what we do. Oh, yeah. So you so you come back from your mission. Uh, I don't want to hurry your story because you're such an amazing storyteller. Where does Where does your rock bottom come about? Briefly, um, get back within a year or so. Within eight months, I, I marry my wife, Erica. Um, she had served a mission when I had served a mission at the same time. Get back. Um, we get married in the Newport Beach Temple. Um, I'm active in my addiction. Newport Beach Temple. Um, don't remember much of my day. My wife will say it's her worst day when we got married. Um, the shame and the guilt of that. Uh, everything got exposed about two two months after getting married. So we moved to Los Angeles. While in Los Angeles, I have a daughter, Olivia, my oldest daughter. Um, that time, I tell myself I'm going to stop. I'm going to quit. Unable to do so. Um, we moved back to Utah so I can complete school um, at UVU because that was the plan, right? Complete school. You'll will help you change and. Have have two more daughters, Stella and Chloe, um, and my rock bottom. I mean, I had so many rock bottoms, but the main one that I remember is, is right after Chloe's born. Um, our family has my grandma has a cabin in Sundance, and everybody, a lot of people were out of town at the time. They come to Sundance, and I remember maybe fifteen minutes of a three-day weekend because I'm just inebriated the whole time, drinking a lot of Red's Apple L's because I think I have to because my last name's Red. <laughs> and, and at one point during that trip, we're driving down we're driving down um, Sundance to Provo Canyon, and my wife's mad at me. My kids are, are crying, um, and all I want to do is crash a car into this rock. And I'd had the thought for maybe a year, like, how do I get out of this? Like, this is miserable. My home life's terrible. Um, I feel terrible. And, and so the ultimate rock bottom is, is I'm driving down. And my wife has a different recollection of the story because I drove separate. Mm-hmm. And so I had my daughter, Olivia, when I drove home for the last time. But at one time, we're driving down together. And I make a decision that I'm going to crash our Honda pilot into this rock heading down Sundance um, toward Provo Canyon with my wife and my three daughters in it. Cause that's the only way that I know out. And again, I drove down must've been with Olivia. I don't, I don't remember much of the trip, but when I got home um, 
it hit me that I needed help. And for the first time in my life at 30 years old, we, I went crawling into the apartment, hit the ground, um, and, and told my wife I needed help. And just that internal feeling of darkness that I had, um, and where I was willing to risk it all. And, and these three beautiful girls, and I was going to put willing to put them in danger because of how I felt inside. Um, that's when my divine intervention happened where I asked for help. So did you end up going to a treatment center? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, and at, at that moment, like I knew treatment worked because two of my best friends growing up had gone to a treatment center and their lives were different. And so I, I knew Alcoholics Anonymous worked before I went to Alcoholics Anonymous because during this, this suffering, these years of, of rock bottom, um, I'd seen their lives change. And so I asked for help. I had zero money. My, my grandma, the bishop, my, my dad, my mom, my brother, my aunt uh, put up enough money for me to get into treatment. And I went to Renaissance Ranch. Um, and while there, I was introduced to feelings and thinking. And um, I was told, hey, man, have you ever asked for the obsession to be removed? Cause, cause I didn't sleep a wink my first 30 days in treatment. I was there 60 days. I didn't sleep. I was taking Ambien for breakfast, Ambien all throughout the day, mixed with benzos, mixed with pain pills, mixed with weed, mixed with Coke, mixed with alcohol. I was trying to get as dumb as I could be on a daily basis. And my body was not sleeping or allowing that while in treatment. Um, and this guy said, hey, why don't, why don't you ask for the obsession to be removed? And so I remember saying, like, hey, God, like, please help me. Please help take this away, whatever this hell is. I no longer want to drink or drug again, and I, I won't um, if you'll help me. And then uh, that was my main turning. That's the only time I've made a decision that I wasn't going to drink or drug again and sincerely believed it could today. I, to this day, I haven't had to question that decision That's when, amazing. when triggered, when, cause when triggered or when thoughts come up, I go to those places where I've used or I get the smells or I get the feelings. I already made that decision. So I know what I'm going to do and, and I'm going to engage in action that I was taught when in treatment while in Alcoholics Anonymous um, from life of how I can how I can recenter and and make it not about me. You're a determined guy. I mean, at nine years old, you were determined to use, and at thirty years old, you were determined not to. And making those choices of, I mean, you followed through. That's impressive. So, what's life look like for you now? Crazy, <laughs> beautiful. Um, I I feel like I'm just a normal guy who. Um, has a very purpose-driven life. Like it's been shared, I'm, I'm the executive director of a treatment facility. Ardu. Ardu. That's, it's my job. I believe it's my calling. It's a beautiful place of healing. Um, I believe that we're one of the best facilities uh, in the world. And, and but that that's my job, right? Does Ardu, is that a 12-step based program? Uh, it's got a, it's got a lot of holistic approach. Clients are definitely exposed to 12-step meetings. The principles of the 12 steps are applied. The, Honesty, willingness, surrender. There's level work. There's we incorporate sound bath. We have a, a Lakota sweat lodge that the clients engage in every week, and 
we introduce or we expose people to practices that will hopefully give them hope, make them feel light. Like people come in dark and they leave with light. They give hope. We give hope. But yeah. So how, how's the marriage? Better. You know, it's um, my wife's amazing. And, and so we've stayed married. We're, we've been married for 15 years. Um, she's still got trauma from it. You know, I, I've had to make some amends to her that probably aren't appropriate to say on air yeah. that were some of the hardest things. Um, but what recovery has done for our family is allowed for this communication of feelings, this healthy dialogue, which is healthy. I'm so grateful that we have the language that we use in our house today. Um, we make amends often. Last night, my daughter's my daughter's yelling at me because whenever I talk to her, she said I yell at her, and that's the last thing that I want to do. And but she's sharing her feelings, and this morning we were able to talk about it. And being a father is weird. I don't know that it's hard. I don't know that it's hard. It's it just weird. weird. Yeah. And, and raising girls is weird. But everything that I've learned within the recovery process, within the 12-step program, within the, the spiritual actions that I take on the daily basis, I, I try to keep myself in a healthy soil. How is the uh, last question? How is the relationship with your brothers today? Awesome. You know, I'm, I'm you still uh, want to be them? Dude, I, I love my brothers and I had a lot of, I had a lot of happiness when they were the ones living in my parents' basement and I wasn't, <laughs> and I was, no, I, so I've been, I've been, uh, like I said, July 21st of 2013 is my sobriety date. Um, my brother, John, I believe I was five years now. Yeah. So I I saw him really suffering and declining for a long time. I, I have another brother who not necessarily going to talk about his story, but he, he's got a sobriety date that he holds. It's on my birthday, and he's doing his life's completely different. And, and another brother who's doing his thing where he's he's not harming people. He's not taking advantage of others. Like I I believe it's there. We're there to help, but... You know, I think the relationship with brothers can always be better. I don't stay in touch as much as I probably should, but a lot more than I did, and and uh, so grateful for them. My parents, they're amazing. They've always been amazing. There's no blame ever on them or anybody in my family. But I took the I took the route that I did. I I don't know why, and that's none of my business. I believe my business today is. Uh, is to show up and help others and, and do what I believe to be God's work. And that's not through my employment. That's through the way that I interact in life. I love it. Uh, I mean, I think this has been a fascinating one, and I and I wish we could lit, talk to him all day long. I could talk to Drew for, forever. You're a great storyteller. <laughs> forever. No, uh, seriously. I but, appreciate that. Oh, I, I love that you brought up one thing, and I'll just close. My, my, my final thought probably is that, and we've seen this a bunch, Casey, on the show, when a person really absorbs all that you can learn in 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 rehab through 12 step and through other means through mindfulness uh, learning to communicate good therapy that raises the mental health of the person's home like you come home and you you have a new way of speaking and interacting that's healthy and direct and you yeah. can 
work things through and you don't have to keep secrets. And I believe that people in recovery have some of the most mentally healthy home lives because they're applying what they learned in their own recovery. But now it's it has this this ripple effect at home with, with children and spouses. And, and I, I think that's beautiful. And uh, I think that your idea of having a calling is a great way to live the rest of your life. I think that's, well, that's beautiful. And I love the fact that you showcase and are an example of how powerful a mindset can be. Oh yeah. I mean, even at the age of nine, you decided this is what you wanted to be and you did. And the age of 30, like Dr. Matt said, you decided you were done and you wished it away, And but you did the work. And, yeah. and I think that's what's cool about it. So, uh, Ardu, if people want more information, where do they go? Yeah, our, ardu.com. You can always call my cell phone, 385-252-9918. No, no bad messages, please. <laughs> I'm still a dad of three girls. But, uh, I won't let Casey text but you. But if, if I could end with one thing, you guys, when, when I believed that there was hope, and I believe that there was change because I'd seen others do it. Every day since that day, I've, I've taken consistent action. Every day since that day, I've, I've hit my knees and I've communicated with the power greater than myself in the morning and in the evening and, and learned to walk with prayer throughout day. Um, I've picked up the big book. For me, for me, that's my jam. I pick up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous every day and I read. I have a sponsor. We talked about him a little bit. He's celebrating 18 years today. Brett O, thank you, man. Love you. Um, I call my sponsor. I have sponsees who call me, and I I try to um, do acts of service for people who, just anybody, and uh, and live the 12 steps. And so, yeah, by all means, it's not, I just made a decision and it was gone. It's like, like I'm safe. Yep. I'm I'm a free man when I take action, period. I think that's the best way to end it. it. Yep. Uh, thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. You were listening to Boys to Men, huh? And it's also Boys, yeah, <laughs> Boys to Men. What else do you listen to when you're 12 beers deep and, and four shots of vodka? <laughs>